Good morning. Um, it's really good to see you here. Um, before we begin talking on this theme, uh, the balance of power and God and power, um, there's something I uh, need to say to you all. And it's simply this, that it's wonderful when we find a little bit of theology that frees us from the bondage that we have. And there are many of us here who are here, I guess, because we found a piece of theology that's freed us from the, from the discrimination that we felt, the bondage that we were trapped in. But here's the problem. So often, what we're looking for is a piece of jigsaw to fit into the old picture that brings us freedom. But the truth is, it can never really work that way. The theology of this church, the theology that's brought liberation to so many people, is a thoroughgoing big picture. And it's no good trying to fit a little piece of theology that works for me or works for you into the old picture. That's why it's brain stretching and hard. And lots of people will say, won't they, it's easy to deconstruct something, it's harder to build something new, which is obviously true. It's easy to knock something down, it's much harder to build something that's new. Our task is to build something that's new, not to just take a brick out the wall that we found offensive. And so, the task is to think, to really think. Now the problem for us, many of us, is that we've been soaked and marinated in a big old theology of, well, it's a theology that puts people down, it's a theology that's been based on fear, get in line, don't speak out, don't ask too many question, questions, just believe what you're told. But what we have to do in constructing a faith that works with the whole of life is to work on that business of construction. And that takes a lot of energy and a lot of thought. And that's what this series has really been about, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, because I was given the theme in our Balance of Power series to talk about God and power. Uh, we've just sung a great song, actually. It really is a great song. It's about, uh, about God turning our mourning into dancing. And it's true, except when it's not. Because there's lots of you sat here right now for whom mourning hasn't been turned into dancing. There's some of you I've sat with in the last week and I've watched your tears because your mourning isn't turned into dancing. And that's the reality. It doesn't take away from the authenticity of singing about mourning turned into dancing because that's also our experience of life. But it's not our only experience of life. And we began uh, the, uh, uh, the service with Kate reading to us from Psalm 150 about God's mighty power. And God does have mighty power. And yet our world is filled with tragedy at the same time. And we're going to look at some of that today. 
So what we have to do is hold together bits of theology that we've gathered with the actual experience of being human. And if we do not do that, here's my prophecy, my prediction. As sure as eggs are eggs, there will come a day when you will walk out of a church building for the last time and you will say, it doesn't work. But actually, it will only be our broken ABC, kiddies theology, that wasn't working for us because we refused to do the hard thinking about something big and joined up and meaningful that makes sense. I'd like us to watch right now the balance of power, God and power, a really apt title. I'd like us to watch now a, a little film. It's an interview with a lady called Dita. Um, she's one of the few last remaining survivors of Auschwitz and you'll know that earlier this week on Thursday the 75th uh, um, anniversary of the closing of Auschwitz was celebrated. Dieter, who survived Auschwitz, tells this little story. Here it is. When you visit Auschwitz you're stepping on the ashes of dead people. Dieter's friends, Dieter's family. So I want to pose a question. The question is this. When in Auschwitz alone, Auschwitz was actually opened, as you, uh, some of you may know, um, it was opened in 1940. It was open for just under five years. It opened in May 1940 and it closed, uh, was evacuated in January 1945. Um, so four and a bit years, just over four and a half years. And in four and a half years, 1.1 uh, million people were executed there. 960,000 of them were Jews. Uh, 74,000 of them were Polish. 21,000 were Roma. 15,000 were Soviet citizens, 10,000 from other nationalities. And all sorts of other people that the Nazi regime didn't want. When, the, uh, when Auschwitz was finally um, evacuated in January uh, 1945, the 60,000 uh, people that were held there at that time were marched to other camps outside of Poland. On that march alone, 15,000 more died. Auschwitz and the Holocaust in general was, without doubt, the largest mass murder in human history. And Auschwitz is the site of the largest mass murder in human history. So the question is this, if all of that is true, and all of that is true, how do the Jewish people, six million Jews died, as you know, in the Holocaust, how does the Jewish faith survive? If Jews sing songs like, you turn my morning into dancing, and you are the all-powerful God, 
in whom I trust. How do they square? How did they square that with the reality of their families dying? It's a big question, isn't it? I don't know if you haven't thought about it. How did the Jewish faith survive Auschwitz? Why did the Jewish faith survive Auschwitz? Why didn't it just crumble into dust there and then as the Jewish rabbis and the Jewish people said, this book is nonsense? It's not like the lives that we lead. Well, that's what we're going to explore in the next few minutes. And I wonder whether you could switch across to my um, uh, PowerPoint. I'd like to show you a picture. And you'll recognize the guy in the middle. It's Martin Luther King. Do you see him? And uh, on one end, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the, uh, the Mac, at that end, is that young man we talked about back in December, uh, John, uh, John Lewis. Remember? He, uh, he, he led the first Selma Bridge march, and then days later, uh, uh, he was beaten up badly. He has a fractured skull in that picture. But days later, they're marching across the bridge together, uh, led by Martin Luther King. But as you look at that uh, 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 list, um, that picture of people, every single one of them leading the march in the front row is black, except for one. There's one white guy there uh, with a beard. Do you see him? Yeah? His name is a rabbi. He died in the 70s. His name is Abraham Herschel. Abraham Joshua Herschel. You've probably never, ever, ever, ever heard of him. But he is, without doubt, one of the greatest theologians in the last 500 years. But not only was he a great theologian, he became a friend and supporter of Martin Luther King. Always a rabbi, but believing that Martin Luther King stood in direct relationship to the Old Testament prophets. Here, they all are again. This time, they're protesting against the war in Vietnam. This is 1968 together. And Herschel's greatest book, you uh, should check out Abraham Herschel, but Herschel's greatest book was called, he published it in 1963, I think. Uh, In 1963, he published a book called The Prophets. And within weeks, it was being cited as one of the greatest masterpieces of biblical theology ever written. Because what Herschel did was he rethought the current experience of the Jewish people and the black peoples of the world, the oppressed peoples of the world, in the light of Hebrew theology, as we call it Old Testament theology, but he would, of course, call it biblical theology, the whole Bible for him. A masterpiece in theology. And what Herschel said was simply this. This book, The Prophets, he'd written before. Uh, He'd written various books before that all worth reading. He's, he's a good writer as well, so he's easy to understand, if you see what I mean. Um, he's academic, but accessible. And, and, and what, he, um, what he says in the prophets is that 
the entire witness of biblical history tells us that God is not all-powerful. Some of you would have heard me uh, speaking on this subject before. I do not believe that God is in control of the world. I don't think I ever have done. I don't believe that God is almighty. I do not believe that God is all-powerful. I believe that God is doing God's best. I've been committed to that view for a long time. God is doing God's best. But having spoken on that before and shocked all sorts of people about that, I thought that this time, because Nath said, speak on this again, instead of telling you what I think, I'd tell you where I kind of learn all these things from. Because I think some people think that I kind of just sit at home and go, hey, guess what? I think I'll just come up with this new <laughs> method of thought. <laughs> you know, I just chew this over. Abraham Herschel is an intellectual giant. And in answer to the question, why did Judaism not die with the closure of Auschwitz? The answer is this. The Jewish scholars, to begin with, were silent. They had no answer for this suffering. Abraham Herschel himself was one of six kids. Four of his siblings perished in Auschwitz. His mum died there. He escaped because he was expelled from Germany into Poland. And ten days before the Germans invaded Poland, he was given the opportunity to come here to London. We used to care about these things. He was given the opportunity to come here to London. And he worked here at, in central London in a university and eventually went to work in Yale in the States and uh, etc. Et in various other universities. He escaped, as did his brother. His brother came here as well and became a rabbi in central London. But most of his family were wiped out. Some of you would have read um, um, Elivishul's book, Night, for which he won a Nobel uh, Peace Prize. Night is a fantastic little book that you'll find absolutely grueling. I find it fascinating. I said to Cornelia, my wife, uh, about three years ago, I, I said, why didn't you download that and read Night on holiday? She, <laughs> she doesn't have the same attitude to holidays as, as I have. That's all I can say. She found it utterly depressing and still often talks about reading this book. But Elie Wiesel doesn't give answers. He just says, night came as we were in our switch, as we watched people die. Where is God? He cried, but he had no answers. And the Jewish community spent the next 15 or so years with no answers. No one wrote, no one spoke. How do you, how do you get over this? Your family's being wiped out. Entire town's being wiped out. Not so long ago, I had the opportunity of going to Prague. And if you ever get the opportunity to go to Prague, there's something called the Pincus Synagogue that you can go stand in. It's really worth going to the Pincus Synagogue. It's in what used to be the Jewish ghetto in Prague. And on the walls of that uh, synagogue are the names, it's beautifully done, of 83,000 people 
who were exterminated from just that city and surrounding suburbs. 83,000 names, their names, their date of birth, their age when they died. Children as young as one and two and three exterminated in death camps, experimented on medically like rats. And you stand there and you ask that same question. How did this nation, this people, this faith survive this terrible, terrible thing happening? And then you realize, as I stood there, I spent a couple of hours there, I realized what it was. Their faith was different to my Christian faith. There was something that was defunct and defect about a Christian faith that has to always say to someone, to a mother whose child is taken young or some children whose mother is wrenched from them or a widow has lost her husband, it was the Lord's timing. He has a bigger plan. He's doing a good thing. You know, God's doing this to teach us some greater thing. This is a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice for some greater moral purpose. You have no idea how many good things will come out of this bad thing etc, etc. God's doing it to teach us something. God needed her more than we needed her. Her time was over. Her job was done. Have you heard all that stuff? It's crap. It's not true. It's terrible. For children to lose their mother, every one of us should weep, break down. I have a good friend. Her name's Rachel. And she lost her dad last not this Friday, but Friday before last. She lost her dad. And she talked to me several times on the phone. And as she talked, I could feel the pain inside her. And I was crying at the other end of the phone for her. And yet we believe in a God who doesn't seem to care and it's all moving chess pieces around a chessboard and when your time's up, your time's up and if you get cancer at the age of 30, oh well, it's just the way things are. So Abraham Herschel, in 1962, three, two, did I say before? Well, early 1960s, publishes this book, The Prophets. And in it he says this, that the whole of Jewish theology is about the fact that God is not all-powerful. When the Jews, of course, talked about God being power, God having power, God being all-powerful, what he says they were saying was simply this. Their God was more trustworthy, more reliable than the other gods that others served. They were not plastic, they were made of clay back then. They were idols set on shelves. They, They were just bits of wood or bits of stone that you would worship. They were, they were like superstition. But, says Israel, time and time again, we place our trust in God. That is the sense in which they are saying God is powerful. And Abraham, Herschel, writes and he says, and you can't read the prophets without realizing that their struggle is a different one. Their struggle is to say to Israel, we have responsibilities and duties too. In fact, perhaps the most famous quote from this book is simply this. The question about Auschwitz is not where was God, but where was man? Where was humanity? 
Herschel unpacks the story of Adam and Eve, which, as you would have heard me say before, has nothing to do with original sin, the snake and all of that kind of stuff. No Jewish scholar of us ever said that, ever taught that, ever. But what Herschel says is there you have this story, this myth, this great parable, Abraham, uh, uh, um, Adam and Eve, and the story of the the talking snake and the, you know all the rest of it. It's a story, it's a parable, but it's a great parable to tell us a great truth. Myth is the best way of getting truth across. By the way, I know some people still struggle with that, but have you noticed, I noticed it again when we uh, did uh, Remembrance Day, you know, at, um, a, a, a few minutes before 11 on, uh, on the Sunday uh, nearest to the 11th, and you know we always watch the Cenotaph if you were here. And then... In, to deal with great pain and tragedy, what do we do? We resort to poetry. They will not grow weary as we grow weary. We will remember them at the rising of the sun, at the going down of the same, we will remember them. In moments of great tragedy, at funeral services, when terrible things happen in a nation, when great atrocities happen, when the Twin Towers come down, people write songs and they write poetry because that is the deepest way of expressing truth. That's what the story of Adam and Eve is. And Herschel says, here is the story. The question isn't, Where is God? It's where is man? Adam is hiding. That's what the story of Adam and Eve is about. Humanity hides. Humanity humanity is tempted by the fruit in selfishness, in selfish behavior, and then hides from God. And Herschel's great thesis is simply this, that the Jewish faith is about God seeking humanity. God seeking us, God seeking a face-to-face contact, God looking at us and asking questions of us for what those first prehistory stories in Genesis tell us is this, that God creates us with creativity. Another point of the Adam and Eve myth, the Adam and Eve parable, humans are created and given paradise. And they're given paradise. We are given this world to rule over, to express creativity in. We work in partnership. This is a central truth of the first chapters of Genesis. We are given freedom. We are given paradise, the Garden of Eden. We choose to live east of Eden, for we hide from God. But God beckons us back to Eden and says, partner with me, walk with me. Let's do this uh, together. I should move on. I could talk about Herschel for a long time, but I won't. There's three guys that I'm going to talk about. Uh, I thought it was extra appropriate that I started by showing the film, therefore, of Dieter. This is a book worth reading. Jürgen Mortmann, The Crucified God. Mortmann was a prisoner of war, a German prisoner of war in Scotland. Mortmann, um, in his young 20s, became a Christian through the kindness showed to him uh, in Scotland by the volunteers that came into work in that prisoner of war camp. He was a young man caught up in the Second World War. 
what could he do? In 1972, he wrote this book, The Crucified God, 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago. It's like, do you know, it's, it's, you, you've got to read it or you've got to really understand it. And what Mortman says is simply this. It's all summed up in this little quote from his book. A God who cannot suffer is poorer than any human. For a God who is incapable of suffering is a being who cannot be involved. Suffering injustice and injustice do not affect him. So in the end, he is also a loveless being. Mortman, building on Herschel's work and other influences and his own experience of life and seeing suffering and seeing the pain of the Second World War, the countless slaughter of lives for nothing, asked, where is God? And comes to the same conclusion that God shares creativity with us and works in partnership with us. That God isn't this all-powerful force shuffling bits of chess, player, chess players around a board. But God is in this with us. The Council of uh, a Chalcedon in 451, you'd think a piece of ancient history now, but it's the Council of the Church, you know, the, 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 all the bishops got together. And in 451, they dismissed the view that God's nature could be what they called passable. And they said that God was impassable. Now, that's strange old language, but it's still used by theologians today. Being impassable, which is what the official doctrines of so many denominations still teach. To, for God to be impassable, they were saying God is impassable, means that God is all-powerful. The same yesterday, today, and forever. God can't be changed. God can change your life, but you can't change God. God is perfect, so therefore incapable of change, and is never moved by anything that's happening. He watches. God watches. She watches. and looks down. And life plays its way out, but God is impassable, incapable of emotion, incapable of, of feeling pain and being changed, for God is the same today and every day, same today, yesterday, and forever. And Jürgen Mortmann writes and says, but that can't be true, because God is love, and if God is love, God must feel pain. And God must work with us. And God is with us in our pain. God weeps with us in our pain. And then he makes this point. For if God cannot suffer, God is not more than human, but less than human. In fact, in another quote, he says, if God does not feel pain, we shouldn't worship God. We should pity God. For love, the ability to love and embrace and to look in another's eyes to feel compassion, to give to another person, is the essence of what it means to be human, to love the other. This is the third book, because I'll talk too long otherwise. I'm going to talk more about this tonight, perhaps in more depth than the chance to, to, for us to interchange, because I hate the way that 
this has to work, but it has to work this way where I say stuff and you just sit passively and listen because, but that's the way it is. But the evening congregation isn't like that. Um, so we'll explore this in more depth. Um, Nicholas Waterstaff um, is in his 90s now. Jochen Mortman's still alive in his 90s too. Uh, Waterstaff is an American philosopher, theologian, and something extraordinary and painful happened to him on June the 12th, 1983. His son, Eric, was researching a PhD in Germany. He was working in Munich. Uh, his son uh, was just 25 years old. Eric was 25 years old. And on a Sunday afternoon, Nicholas, fantastic theologian, again, look up his name and you'll see the stuff he's written. Nicholas got a phone call and it was from Eric's um, landlady. And Eric's landlady said to Nicholas, he recounts this story, I'm afraid Eric has had an accident. And Nicholas asked about it and she said, I'm afraid it's a very serious accident. How is he? He's dead. He'd been climbing. He loved sport and he loved climbing. And he slipped off a rock, hence the cover of this book. And he died instantly as he fell and hit the ground. And Nicholas went into a mourning and a sense of loss. And he says he had to rethink everything he'd ever thought. And what did he do in the end through the pain? He drew on Abraham Herschel. And he drew on Jürgen Mortmann. But you see, knowing something intellectually isn't the same thing as knowing it. Does that make sense? And because he's this great professor with more PhDs than you can shake a stick at, he kind of understood up there ethereally all of how this worked. But now his son was dead. His son was dead. And slowly he began to write about this. Lament for a Son is an unusual theology book because it's just, just a journal really. It's not just anything. It's, it's, it's not like anything else uh, Waterstoff has ever written. Everything else he writes is, you know, filled with footnotes and texts and all sorts of things. This is about raw feeling. And he says this in it. He learned through this pain that grief is the price. He says, grief is the price I was paying for love. And slowly over time he extrapolated this out because his question is, where was God? Does God care? Could God have stopped Eric falling? Why didn't God stop Eric falling? And he slowly realized this. That he was a father and because he was a father he loved his son and yet God is the father of love. And grief is the price that you pay for love. In fact the more you love the more you grieve. 
the deeper your love, the deeper your suffering. And so Nicholas came to understand, and not in a trite way, you should read the book, that actually the price of love is always grief. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. He talked about the fact that as a parent, many of us are parents here, not all of us, but as a parent, he wanted his children to flourish. If you're a mum, if you're a dad, if you're an aunt, an uncle, a grandmother, a grandfather, you want those children to flourish, don't you? He talked about the fact that you want, he wanted his children to flourish. He said, so we invest ourselves in them in doing whatever we can to promote their flourishing, which becomes more important than our flourishing. Yeah? For the, our children to flourish. We rejoice with them, he says. Over, oh, we rejoice with them in their excitement and in their achievements and in their attainments, in the good things that come their way. And then he says this, and every mum and dad knows this, and aunt and uncle knows this and we sorrow with them in their failures and their disappointments and their bruises and their broken bones so he says that when his son Eric died a big part of who he was was ripped out and he says this grief isn't some kind of additional component that you carry. He says, grief didn't become, you know, I was me, but now I've got this bit of me, this chunk of me, which is grieving. He said, it's not like it was bolted in. Instead, he said, I had to learn to live a new life altogether. I had to live a new kind of life, one for which I'd had no practice. Grief became the very core of who I was. I was saturated in it. It was part of me forever walking onwards. Grief, I have come to think, is wanting the death or the destruction of the loved one to be undone, he says, while at the same time knowing it can never be undone. Grief is wanting with all your heart what you know or believe is impossible. It can never be changed. You have to live with it. The more intense the wanting, the more intense the grief. Grief is banging your head on a wall and knowing the wall will never give way. But, says Nicholas, in this brilliant book, short book, My Faith Endured. But, he says, it would become a different kind of faith. And that's the point for us all. Our faith has to be a different kind of faith, not this kind of glib, eh, God sorts everything out, pray about it and it will change, everything changes, I'm not denying the value of prayer to mould us and shape us, I'm not denying the fact that sometimes as we pray, there's that wow that we can never understand and things change. I've seen that, I know that, I pray for that, I long for that. But I also know 
that often I pray and work and dream and things don't change. So he says, my faith endured, but my faith became a different kind of faith. My grief was incorporated into it. I came to believe in a different understanding of God. And more than that, he says, my relationship with all other human beings was changed because for the first time I felt an emotional affinity with them. I understood their grief in a way I never could before, even though I'd read the textbooks. So I should talk about Moses and the reading that was read to us, that Jim read. Let me remind you of the story. It's Exodus chapter 33. It's from verse 12 to verse 21 that Jim read uh, so brilliantly. And in the story, Moses, who's being asked to lead Yahweh's people, God's people, into a place of safety and out of slavery, out of bondage, he says, God, you know, if I'm going to do all this, people are going to ask me about you. And, and if they ask me about you, I, I need to know who you are. Because I'm traveling with you. I'm entering this partnership with you. I think Moses, being a Jew, not a Christian, always understood that God wasn't all-powerful and there were many battles ahead. So I need to know you. And God says, well, you know, you can know me as we travel together. But Moses says, can I see you? And God says, you can't see me. And then Moses asks again in the passage. And then God says, you cannot look at my face and live. Fantastic verse. But if you hide, you'll be able to see my shadow as I pass. You cannot look at the face of God and live. I was taught that story when I was about eight. I was taught that story in a Sunday school on a Sunday afternoon, three o'clock I used to go. I was taught it in a, in a group of boys my own age by a guy called um, Andrew Doward, who was our Sunday school teacher. Andrew Doward, he was like real old. He wore long trousers. You know, it was like amazing. And, and he looks, whoa, he looks so academic. I realize now, I know now that I was eight and he was 14. But he was, that's true, you know, that's true. But he was teaching us. And I'll never forget this, this lesson he gave us. It was the greatest um, Sunday school lesson ever. Teaching us entirely the wrong thing, actually. But it was a great lesson. He read to us that passage and he said at the top of his voice in this little group, and God said to, Abra uh, God said to Moses, no one can see the face of God and live. And then he did this amazing thing. Out of one pocket, he used to wear a suit. Out of one pocket of the suit, he got some uh, uh, um, tissue paper. You know, um, brittle tissue paper, all crumpled up. And out of the other pocket, he got a cigarette lighter. Now, we went to a Baptist church. We'd never seen a cigarette lighter before. It was like amazing. <laughs> Don't know where he smuggled it in from. You know, it's great. And he lit this cigarette lighter and this flame is burning. And, you know, we're boys. Boys love pyrotechnics, don't they? We're all eight years old. And he repeated the words, no one, as he held the paper in one hand and the lighter in the other. He said, no one 
can see the face of God and live. Aha. And he moved the tissue paper closer to the flame and the flame underneath this dry tissue paper. And the flame jumped. And the tissue paper caught on fire. It was burning out of control, which is when it all went wrong, to tell you the truth, because <laughs> he, he not planned on this. So he, he kind of threw it on the floor, which meant the girls' lesson, because the girls had to be taught differently to the boys. I don't know what they learn about over there. They went, ah! And there was this fire on the wooden floor in this old... And then everyone had to become involved, and then the Sunday school superintendent had to run over and stamp on it, or, you know, stamp on it, and then someone ran and got some water and poured the water on the old wooden floor and all the rest of it. And that actually, to tell you, it's absolutely true. That is the, this absolutely true. That was the last time Andrew Dowd ever taught us at all. <laughs> I think the powers that be realised he had more training to do. And I carried that lesson, though. I still remember it all these years later. I carried that lesson with me forever. And I guess some of you actually believe it. No one can see the face of God and live. If God knows you, if God sees you, you miserable little thing, with all your sin and your duplicity and your words one way and your thoughts another way, no one can look at the face of God and live. But Nicholas Osterstock says something different. He says this in his book. So he says, as I slowly realize that the price of love is grief and realize that God is love, I read again the story in Exodus chapter 33. And I realized that what the God of all history was saying to Moses is, no, no one can see the face of God and live. But Moses, you cannot look into the pain of my face. You cannot gaze on the suffering that I bear. You cannot enter into that level of pain and live. I remember some years ago now, I was in Bangkok. It was in the early days of Oasis and we were funding projects in the red light district of Bangkok, which is huge. And I went to make a video there. And on the second or third day, we went out to a government home for abandoned children. It was called Rainbow House. And I'll never, ever forget that visit. We went in an old Volkswagen camper. I went with a couple of other guys from uh, Oasis who were there to film this film with me. And these kids were all taken off the streets and they were abandoned in this giant old hospital, which I hope no longer exists. And we went into this place, which was falling apart, I can't remember the figures now, but let's say it was built for a 500-bed hospital. It had triple that, children in. And we walked through ward after ward, and there'd be a, a, a three children to a bed. They'd be laid across the bed, 
and there'd be no one working on that ward and the kids would be screaming and a baby would, um, a baby would be laid there and one would have urinated across the bed and there'd be a child of eight who obviously had huge mental health issues and another child of two and they'd just be left there in grief. And then the staff would come in but they'd wear masks so that they didn't get disease. And uh, I saw them going round shaving some kids' hair off, their, you know, and they'd, they'd feed them twice a day, and there was no contact. And in fairness to them, there was no time for there were so many children. And then I went into a ward, and there was this boy there. He was probably nine or ten, and he sat on the edge of this bed, and there was a baby either side of him just left there as well. The bed was wet and yellow and he had his thumb in his mouth and he was rocking backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards like this. And I stood in front of him and I knew he couldn't see me, though he was looking at me. I knew he was somewhere else. He couldn't see me. And people were telling me that we had to go, but he was rocking backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And so I sat on the bed next to him and I began to stroke him. Slowly, slowly, as I stroked him and held him, the rocking slowed and ceased. And he was still and he found peace. But then I had to go, I was being called. So I had to get up and leave him. And as I walked out the end of the ward and looked back down the ward through the windows, I watched him and he began to rock again. And I went out and I sat in our Volkswagen camper van, the one that had transported us there. And I cried. And I prayed, I'm being honest with you, I prayed that I would die. Because I couldn't at that time, this is in the late 1980s, see how I could continue to live having seen that pain. No one can see the face of the God of love and live. But the God who calls us into partnership and said, Adam, Eve, where are you? Don't live east of Eden. Work with me. Work with me. Still calls us back into his purposes. Formerly it's called collaborative eschatology but that's for another day it actually means partnership we are called to serve the great Abraham Herschel says the question isn't where is God in our switch it's where is humanity and the question in our great city of London and across our planet is where is humanity humanity 